It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy, and I'm Amber, and we are here this week bringing you some crime from the times that are old. Yes, they're old times. You might even say old timey crimey. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's the name of the show. And in the future, when Jackson and I are listening to this for a quality check, we'll lift our drinks and a toast to each other and take a sip. Because we do that every time somebody says old-timey on a podcast. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Future Christy and Jackson. <laughs> so, hey, listeners. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. We would like you to not forget that we have a Patreon. And you can both support us and get some content for your ears. Yep, lots of good stuff over on Patreon. We do a short episode every week of bonkers stories, and uh, usually only one of us knows what the story is about. Hmm. This week I told Amber a story that had a sharp left turn at one point. But he didn't even like picnics. He didn't. It's true. That's apparently a defense. So yeah. And then we also have our monthly big bonus episode, the Extra Extra we're in Amber, me, and another guest host each tell each other a story based on some sort of theme. So those are super fun as well. You should definitely check us out over there. It's only five bucks a month. And we also have been running occasional contests over on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, Old Timey Crimey on all three. And so we have a shout-out to Regan Hudson, who guessed what our case was going to be last week. Very quickly. Good job, Regan. We didn't even get to finish recording the episode before he I know. He was it. on it. Yes. So shout-out, Regan got an old-timey, crimey sticker in the mail. And so, yeah, we did not do one this week because this is actually such an obscure case that only two other podcasts have covered it. Hooray! That's hard to find with older crimes, you know? Like, people delve into that at some point, and then other people delve into it. So it was very exciting to find that out. So, should we talk about a woman who uh, people really liked? I really like her, too. <laughs> so um, I name my show notes for every episode, and this week is Jesse Jawdropper. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. That's perfect. I just had the smiling widow because that, I wasn't being very creative and I just took what they called her. Jessie Jawdropper was born Jessie Burnett Fife on September 15th, 1902 in Yonkers, New York. Both of her parents, Andrew J. Fife and Jessie Burnett, were immigrants from Scotland. She had a brother. It does not appear she had any other siblings from what I could tell. In her teens, her family moved to Peabody, Massachusetts. Some notable people of Peabody include Giles and Martha Corey and John Proctor, who were uh, Salem witch trial victims. There you go. So there you go. Her father, Andrew, worked as the state examiner, which from what I could see seems to be an administrative position over municipal fire and police services, like maintaining standards for those services, conducting examinations in any case where there's an entrance or screening exam required, keeping data on the fire and police services around the state. That seems to be the, the gig. And she would dabble in both the fire world and the police world in a couple ways. <laughs> 
a couple ways. Jessie went to grammar school for eight years, then dropped out, so she never went to high school. Then she worked in a bakery and then an office. Of a leather factory. Yes, a leather factory. Where she ran an adding machine, which apparently is quite amazing as a woman to have known how to add. <laughs> quite a talent she had for putting numbers together and then getting a sum. Jessie was selling poppies for World War I vets in 1919 when she met Bill Costello. And she was probably pretty into this because her father was, he went off to World War I as a first lieutenant and miraculously came back alive. Amazing. Yeah. So Bill Costello, she met him. Now Jessie, she was born right in time to become a flapper in the 20s. From the New England Historical Society, I have this quote about her. Short skirts, bobbed hair, an outgoing personality, and an ample bust. <laughs> she had the boobies, people. Now, this feels like a little bit of a mismatch in the marriage, given that description. In 1923, she was 21 when she married Bill Costello. He was an Irish Catholic firefighter, and the adjective used to describe him was grim. I also see stern, quiet, and serious, and uh, Jesse was uninhibited and outgoing, so it doesn't seem like quite the perfect match. <laughs> with, with no other information, having definitely not uh, researched this case for two days, I, I just don't see this working. I, I Maybe, but at the same time, like, opposites attract, and maybe you need that balance, because if you have two people that are both outgoing, you end up drinking each other under the table and, and usually falling into alcoholism. So maybe she needed that calmness. That's very true. Somebody to, to bring her back down and she could bring him up sometimes. I know that Jackson and I have a relationship where I'm definitely the more talkative one. And he's more reticent, but that works for us. I just talk, talk, talk his ear off. <laughs> and then he surprises me by speaking. <laughs> so, so yeah. He was eight years her senior, and according to one source, his main hobbies seemed to be praying and worrying about his chronic indigestion that was plaguing him. <laughs> I did see that. Yes. Those are some hobbies. Some people cross-stitch, some people jog, some people pray and uh, fret about indigestion. He would become fire captain during their marriage, so he rose up through the ranks at the fire department. They had four children. One of them, William Jr., died around 1930. He was aged 17 months. The cause of death was said to be an enlarged thymus gland, which I discovered is only a gland you have up until around, I think I, think I read around the time you go into puberty. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm not really super familiar with that gland, but by the time I would have been learning about glands, I wouldn't really have that one being active anymore. But when William Jr. died, William Sr. turned even more to Jesus. Yes, he did. So he would spend hours at a time in church. He would kneel to pray before a picture of his dead son or a crucifix that was taken from his coffin. And they said he never laughed or talked very much. But after William Jr. passed, it was even worse. I mean, the death of a child. I couldn't even imagine. Never, never easy to go through. And if, if church and prayer was what helped him, then that's great. 
I feel like as time went on, it kind of seemed like he he sank into it though, and, and rather than letting it pull him up. Well, I mean, he still had three other children. Yes, and he, I think he just got kind of lost in his in his grief. Mm-hmm. And those three other children in 1933, which is the year that a lot of these events take place, they were Anna Marie nine, Jesse six, and Bobby three. So two girls and a boy. And then uh, Jesse Senior, yes, <laughs> Jesse the first. But no, Jesse's mom was also Jesse. Oh, that's true. Jesse the second. Then Jesse jaw jaw dropper. We'll go with I Jesse jaw dropper. I almost said jaw breaker for some reason. But. Well, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she's taking care of the children at home, and she also was pretty much ordered to care for Bill's aging father. Bill's brother just brought him over there one day, and it was like, here, your problem now. Yeah, you deal with this. In late 1932, Jesse's mother, Jesse the First, died. She was only 54, but the life expectancy that year was 58.74. And uh, the year her mother was born, it was 48.62 for women. Oh. So she actually outlived the life expectancy at the time she was born. There you go. Yeah. So this life was really not working out too well for Jessie. She was maybe a little bored or overstressed with all this stuff and felt like she needed some fun. So she started having a fling with another man, a married man, a married policeman. This was Edward McMahon. She nicknamed him, go ahead, Amber. Was it Big Daddy? Big Boy. Oh, Big Boy. Big Boy. Come here, big boy. Got some stuff I want to tell you, big boy. Okay, I, I would love to read the description of big boy. Yes, absolutely. He was no Clark Gable. <laughs> described as rather lumpish, none too bright. But he was better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, a ringing endorsement of Eddie McMahon. <laughs> Lumpish. <laughs> he came this close to being a sack of potatoes. This he close. really did. Yes. None too bright. Better than nothing. Oh my god. That's what I want on my tombstone. She was better than nothing. <laughs> but you know what? Like I saw a picture of him, and he actually was, I would say, pretty handsome for the day. But maybe he was an idiot. And that's really what I'm getting out of here. Is uh, he was he was just kind of like a. a dull person but he had the right parts yes <laughs> yes she definitely seemed to be after him for his parts that was that was big for her so that was big that's for where her. the big boy nickname <laughs> came from guys right had nothing to do with his personality yeah. now eddie mcmahon and his wife and their two kids had actually lived with the costellos at some point and they were all said to be close friends We'll delve into that a little bit more at, at length here, but let's talk about February 17th, 1933. The morning starts out with the maid, Catherine Symbolist, arriving at the house. Jesse tells the maid that Bill had mixed a special concoction to polish up some of the metals in the house, and the first thing she ne needed to do was clean the water tank in the kitchen. So Catherine said, well, I don't know how to use this concoction. This is all new to me. So Jesse's like, okay, I'll, I'll show you. Slaps on some rubber gloves, gives her a nice little demonstration on the water tank. And Catherine said later, 
Acrid fumes arose from the mixture and they affected her eyes so badly she abandoned the task. So this was wow. a bad mixture of things. There's a knock at the door. Jessie goes to answer it and finds Nellie Ayers, a woman selling fudge door to door. Jessie's like, oh, yeah, fudge. Sure, that sounds good. I'll take a pound. But, you know, hang on. I got to go get my purse. Now imagine Nellie Ayers' surprise when Jessie leaves to go get her purse. And then from upstairs, poor Nellie hears five or six screams <laughs> come. She's just standing on the porch like, I did I, 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 don't, I did not know what I was getting into when I knocked on this door. From an interview from her, she, she says, quote, she screamed something terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then Jessie comes back to the door and is screaming that her husband was dead. And she said, you know, now doesn't really seem like a good time to be buying candy, which I, I do agree with her on that. And she hurried Nellie Ayers away. Which Nellie then grumbled about. Yeah, she like, seemed pretty to pissed. the press. She's like, D- this double dealing. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just go somewhere else and peddle your fudge. Yeah, the next house down, maybe. And while you're at it, could you let them know that their neighbor is dead? Just pass the word along. Right? <laughs> like, if somebody is dead and you're trying to sell them fudge, and I can't buy that right now, go away. <sighs> That's ridiculous. What a Karen. <laughs> that bitch wouldn't take my fudge. Nellie, you're the first Karen. <laughs> Good job. So Bill Costello was 38, and the death appeared to be from a heart attack. Jesse had found him on the hallway floor. A lot of the modern reports say in the bathroom, but it seems like from the, the contemporary reports and the, the court case and everything that it was more like the hallway between the bedroom and the bathroom. It wasn't a large house anyhow, so he could have been half. He could have been half in both. He could have been a third. <laughs> third in the bedroom, third in the hallway, third in the bathroom. So He was in all the rooms upstairs. He really was. The funeral was held on February 19th, and Bill Costello was buried. But what wasn't buried were all the rumors swirling around that the cause of death was not so natural. And the DA said that friends of Bill Costello were requesting an autopsy. So after the funeral, immediately, like as soon as people left the graveside, they swooped in and dug the body back up and exhumed him. He was examined by a Harvard toxicologist, Dr. J. Stewart Rooney. Hold on. Did you see Jesse's prediction? Oh, I think I missed this. So Jesse had a prediction that... They'll have to go like hell to find any poison in Bill with all that embalming fluid in them. Oh, an interesting prediction. Oh, wow. And she knows uh, a little more about how this works than one would expect. <laughs> a little bit more, yeah. So Dr. J. Stuart Rooney found traces of cyanide of potassium in Bill Costello's organs. And from the CDC... Inhalation exposure to hydrogen cyanide gas released from potassium cyanide produces symptoms within seconds to minutes. Death may occur within minutes. For eye exposure, you get redness, pain, severe burns, and tissue damage. And from uh, inhalation exposure, you have the following severe effects. Central nervous system effects, coma, seizure, and dilated pupils. Cardiovascular effects, looks like a heart attack. Shock, abnormal or disordered heart rhythms critically low blood pressure, and cardiac arrest. So there you have it. 
There was also an examination performed by Dr. George McGrath, a rather famous medical examiner in the region. And at first, a lot of people were saying, well, probably a suicide. But that seemed to be dismissed pretty quickly. I mean, it would come up again. But as far as what people were talking about, everybody was like, nah, I don't think so. The investigation kicks into gear. The police are asking questions. And Jesse admits that, yeah, she'd bought some poison, but it was for cleaning cutlery. Now, again, according to the CDC, cyanide salts are used in metallurgy for electroplating, metal cleaning, and removing gold from its ore. I mean, it's not recommended, and you have to take many precautions, obviously. Yes. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. A drug clerk confirmed that she had bought cyanide from his store, and they started questioning the neighbors, including a patrolman and his wife, who Jesse had called to the house the day of the death, a high school teacher who had gone to a wake with Costello the night before, and reserve patrolman, big boy Eddie McMahon, who would soon to be known as the Kiss and Tell Cop. I love it. Such great nicknames. I know, right? In early March, Dr. Harris Pomeroy, the family physician for the Costellos, hired two lawyers and directed any questioners to them. He said, I'm not taking any questions. He also said he had not treated Bill Costello in three years, even while Jesse was insisting that he was their family doctor. He's like, that's my, that's my doctor. And he's like, nope, mm -mm, not part of this. Haven't seen him in years. Yep. Although he was the one who determined the cause of death as a heart attack and was the one to pronounce him dead. So it seems like he was at least called to the house. So maybe he meant I haven't seen him alive in three years, perhaps. That might be more closer to the truth. Speaking of heart attacks, Dr. Harris Pomeroy suffered two heart attacks in the following weeks, with his name being put on the danger list at the hospital. From what I can tell, though, he lasted another 20 years. Hmm. And on Find a Grave, I found he has two listings, I think, because he has two headstones. Both of them are in Massachusetts. It looks like maybe he was married. His wife died around age 30. He had a gravestone set up for both of them, and then he was randomly buried elsewhere with maybe what might be a sister and her husband, from what I can tell. The headstone was a little hard to read from the picture. So maybe somebody didn't know to put him with his wife and was like, well, here's his sister. Stick him there. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what ended up happening. <laughs> the same day that Dr. Pomeroy hired attorneys, Jesse was like, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to do that, too. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good thinking, honestly. I am very much behind the, you know, the idea that you have an, a, the right to an attorney. Take advantage if you can. Absolutely. This whole idea that hiring attorney makes you look guilty. No, you're, you're exercising one of your rights according to the law. And I get that because I would probably do the same thing because I have this, this awesome habit of just saying whatever I think. And I feel like that is probably what's going to land me in prison, not what I actually did. Yeah, there you go. It's entirely possible. I so, also have a problem with authority. So Definitely hire an attorney if yep. you ever find yourself needing to talk to the cops. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that. So the DA, Hugh Craig, summoned Jesse to his office soon after that. Brown chicken, brown cow. <laughs> but before she could set out for his office, she swooned. And they had to call in doctors, but not Dr. Pomeroy. <laughs> he, Swooned. He was busy with his own heart attacks, probably. 
Her attorneys tell the doctor to issue no statements on her condition aside from the fact that she was unable to answer police questions. They were like, that's it. That's the only thing you can tell them. And the next day, March 4th, the DA declares that Costello had been murdered, but says that no arrests would be made immediately. They did exhume the body of her son, who had died three years ago, the 17-month-old, and there were rumors that they might exhume the body of her mother, since she died only five months before all this. It doesn't appear they did that, and in the case of the baby, cause of death determination was impossible due to decomposition after a couple years had passed. I can't believe that they dig up the baby. I know. that I, I understand the reasoning that they might have thought, well, maybe we have a serial killer. There's been a couple of deaths around her. But also there's the fact that people die. Yeah. Still almost two weeks after her collapse, Jessie was unable to withstand questioning. And yet at the time, she was also being asked by magazines and papers to pose for pictures and being offered money for it. She's starting to become famous already. She had her father staying with her, and he carried a stick, drew a line in the dirt, and threatened to beat up any photographers or journalists who crossed that line. That's a good dad. It's a good dad, but he goes back and forth on being a good dad. It's, it's kind of uncertain. It may depend on your point of view and who you are. So the grand jury was convened despite her inability to meet with the DA, and they indict her for murder. She was arrested on March 17th, 1933, exactly one month after her husband's death. This from the Rutland Daily Herald. She appeared calm as she left her home in the custody of policemen, smiled and posed several times for news photographers, and banteringly said, what am I getting out of this? That being in reference to the posing offers she'd been Mm -hmm. (laughs) having run through her house. She's like... I've been offered money for this, and you guys are getting it for free. Maybe we should talk about that. (laughs) And then, quote, she was taken to the Salem jail where the photographer's flashlights momentarily blinded her as she ascended the stairs, and she appeared irritated and spoke sharply as she stumbled on the steps. And I translate that as, she swore. (laughs) She did have a tendency towards profanity. There were things that she said that the paper printed as lines. (laughs) Like, basically, like... The newspaper version of bleeping. Yeah. So she was held in the Salem jail without bail in the hail with a nail. No. Uh, and pleaded not guilty. This this woman would never plead guilty. Never. It didn't matter how dead to rights they had her. Never in her life would she plead guilty. Mm-hmm. Plus, that would end all the fun she's having. <laughs> But not fun is the idea that uh, the death penalty is, in fact, on the table. And at this period of time in Massachusetts, that would be the electric chair. The DA then summoned McMahon, big boy, big boy, big boy, for more questioning. And then a weird thing happens. This is a little strange little blip on the activities of that day. The DA and the police chief of Peabody were questioning Big Boy. And then this from the Rutland Daily Herald. The interrogation was interrupted by the departure and return of McMahon with some of the officials on an errand, the purpose of which was not revealed. Where the hell did they go? 
What did they do? Why did they stop an interrogation, go on a field trip, or go to the drugstore and pick something up and then come back? What was that? No idea. I know. I have nothing. I've been stewing on that for days, and I'm still I'm like, I'm coming up blank. So listeners, if you have any ideas as to what may have happened during that field trip, hit us up on the social media. You know where to find us. McMahon, quote, told authorities he had been familiar with Mrs. Costello. And familiar is, uh, the, 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 you know, eh, 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 eh. although it would have sounded differently because it would be in a car. And moved five miles away to Beverly, Massachusetts soon after this to live with a relative as he had been getting some threats due to his statements about the case. So, not great. And the county officials actually were speaking on his behalf, denying rumors that McMahon and his wife had separated, said that uh, he and his his wife and children were all still living together. So different stories coming out from all around. Jesse's father, on the pendulum of being a good dad, visited her every day. He brought her candy and other little luxuries. Her children were brought to visit her, and the three-year-old thought the jail was a hospital. Uh-huh. He was like, mommy's in the hospital. And they were like, we are not going to correct you. That's fine. Or that was the story they told him because they were like, I don't think we should tell this three-year-old that his mother's in jail. No. Maybe hospital is better. I, I think so. Yeah. There was also to be an examination of Jesse by an alienist. There was actually a law in Massachusetts that anyone charged with murder undergo a psych exam for a, quote, sanity test. They came once in late March and then actually made another surprise visit two weeks later. So it seemed like they felt that her being prepared for them was not giving them full results or something. They I'm need not the really element sure. of surprise. They really do. You do need the element of surprise with this woman. <laughs> and the results were not to be made public, but she didn't end up going with an insanity defense. So we can assume probably everything came up pretty clear there. The lawyers were saying that they would have to summon a hundred men for jury selection. No word on how many women they'd have to summon. I'm going to guess it was zero. Zero. Yeah. And the defense actually got their own experts to start examining the body. Sometimes we have this thing, especially the older cases, where the defense lawyers just do absolute diddly shit. They do nothing. So it is nice to see the defense lawyers actually working on her behalf, because I do think in any case where you have some sort of biological results, both sides should be allowed to have their own examination of that. No, absolutely. I mean, like, even in today's day and age, you can find evidence to back up your argument, regardless of what side you're on. There is Mm -hmm. evidence to back up your side of it on opposite ends of the spectrum, always. Yeah, and it does end up being this thing where in court cases we have the dueling experts. Yeah. Which, it gets me every time I'm like watching a show, listening to a podcast, reading a book, whatever, where as soon as the experts start coming in, I'm like, you know, expert one, wow, that sounds really credible. I'm, I, I believe you, and I think this person is guilty. And then expert two comes in for the defense, and I'm like, well, crap. <laughs> no, I think that they might not be guilty. Damn it. And see, they kind of sometimes can just cancel each other out. Yeah. Yeah. The trial starts in mid-July. They impanel the jury, and that day after they impanel the jury, Jessie leaves the courthouse, quote, her face beaming with a smile of confidence. The first thing, of course, the jury has to go on their field trip. 
They're taken to the murder scene. Jesse declines to go. And then the trial is on its way. There are crowds already gathering to catch a glimpse of her on the way in and out of the courthouse. And she really starts becoming like a thing in Mm -hmm. public discussion and in the press. Her treatment is just absolutely bonkers. The way that people cater to this woman and fawned over her. My God, the bailiff brought her roses every day. Every day. What? What? The bailiff? He's an officer of the court. Pretty sure he's supposed to remain impartial. Pretty, pretty sure, yes. Speaking of people who are supposed to remain impartial, one of the jurors wanted to send her a box of candy and was inquiring as to how he would go about that or if he could. (laughs) And... She was brought to court in a limo with window shades that she could pull and raise whenever she wanted to give the crowd a little peek. She got sometimes 500 love letters a day and posed for pictures at her husband's grave in one particular photo shoot. And the press called her a buxom prima donna. And a glamorous siren. Yes, yes. Okay, so I think... The elephant in the room is we do have to talk about her looks. I'm not a super big fan of it because I feel like we have so many different standards now. Well, and and they are completely different. She had these these really, like, big, dark, high-arched eyebrows that look kind of crazy. It looks like a badly drawn cartoon. It looks like, oh, my God, his name is totally escaping me now, but he was in the American, Eugene Levy. There you go. She she does have kind of Eugene Levy eyebrows. But you know what? So I think the big thing here is it's not really so much her looks, but the the attitude and the confidence. Because that means the world across different timelines and different things. I mean, she had this great big smile that lit up a room. And she, she would like wave and flirt with the cameras and the people. And... It was really, I think, a lot of her outgoing personality that is what drew people in. I fully agree. And I also think, having looked at several different pictures of her, there are some where those eyebrows really draw the eye, and there are some where they don't, and she does have a very highly attractive appearance. And I honestly think you and I have talked about this, in not on the podcast, but we both feel that we are not photogenic people. We're not. <laughs> but every once in a while, there's a picture of me that I'm like, oh. I actually took a good picture. So I think she's one of those people who's kind of a camera chameleon. Perhaps, perhaps. But I was actually, I was just reading an article about this, about different fads in in women's fashion and stuff. Ooh. And it was, it was fascinating, the horrible things we've done to women in society over the centuries. And uh, one of the big things, I believe it was 18th century Europe, they would actually pull out all their eyelashes and eyebrows because the attractive thing was having a giant forehead. And people would pluck their hairline back to make their forehead even bigger. And there was a portrait of this. And I'm like, oh, my God, it looks scary. But that was, that was a thing at one point. Another thing was Italian women wanted to have very, very tiny, thin lips. <laughs> I should have lived back then. <laughs> but that was the thing that they wanted. That was what was considered beautiful. And it was just all these different stereotypes and things. And you have some of the stuff we have now with the, the waist that is far too small and then like the big curves with a big mush mouth lips and like it's just different standards of beauty and it's constantly evolving and changing. And I think for this era, she was very beautiful. She had the, the flapper hair and she had this bright smile 
And so I think for this day and age, she would draw people to her. Yeah, yeah. She was the flame. And, and you know what? They were all moths. I'll say it. Eugene Levy, kind of a babe. I agree with you, actually. Yes, I agree with you. And a lot of it is, like, I'm not saying he's unattractive physically, but I'm just saying he has a very interesting personality. He kind of draws people to him yeah. and, and an interesting way of presenting himself and, and talking. So, so yeah, I felt that we should discuss the, the eyebrow issue. The eyebrow issue, yes. yes. I also, I, I'm going to say, because we know <laughs> how incredibly shallow society is and how much the society was dominated by males back then, the fact that in one way or another, in veiled terms, her boobs are mentioned so often, that had to also play in. <laughs> you know, she's buxom, she's a siren, she's busty, there's all, all this stuff. I'm not saying that was the only factor. Oh, Amber just showed me a picture of a young Eugene Levy. He was a cutie pie. He was a cutie pie. He just looks like a nice boy. He does. <laughs> sounds so old. So... But everybody just absolutely freaking adored her. She was almost like a movie star without having been in any movies. Yeah. The trial starts, and there's the opening statements. And this, again, from the Rutland Daily Herald. The state today showed its hand to Mrs. Jessie B. Costello, charged with the poison slaying of her husband, and then proceeded to deal the cards it condemns will result in her conviction. They have some... Pretty decent writing for being a small paper in Vermont. Yeah, <laughs> but that's what they think. <laughs> right? The DA's opening statement went over two hours. That's excessive. Also remember that this is summer and air conditioning doesn't exist. And that's your opening statement. It's not even the only thing you're saying. Right? What the hell, man? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going overboard. He said that Jesse, dressed in a black gown and seated less than 10 feet from him, was, quote, an extravagant, vulgar, profane, and lewd woman whose ideas of life were far removed from those of her husband. Oh. Yeah. Well, he's not wrong. I mean, their, their ideas of life were definitely far apart. Agreed. But that doesn't make her vulgar. Maybe her swearing at the reporters on the way in. <laughs> yeah. And some of the other swearing we'll experience from her, yeah. Some of the other swearing. <laughs> Maybe she was a little vulgar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, she might have been. He called her frivolous, insulted her parenting, saying she had no regard for her children. Well, it's hard to have regard for your children when they lock you in prison, in fairness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although one questions, if she did in fact kill their father, she took their father out of their life and ended up in prison so that there was no... He wasn't around that much anyway. <laughs> he was always at church or the fire station. Yeah. The defense sought to counter that, and made sure that in, in their cross-examination of every witness to come, they established that Jessie, quote, was kind to her children, a good housewife, and an able helpmate to Bill. I hate the word helpmate. Helpmate. I know. It, it's, it's bothersome. She would even visit him at the firehouse at noon and bring him dinner every day. And I think the dinner was the noon visit. I think that was all one thing. Going back to different definitions of dinner and supper and yeah. lunch and luncheon and all these things. The, the food time. Food time, yes. Food time. Meanwhile, witnesses were also coming out with the information that Jesse had said Bill was acting strange in the weeks before his death. And one of them said that Jesse had told him that Bill had at one point beaten her black and blue. 
We have testimony from the maid, Catherine Symbolist, and the candy saleswoman, Nellie Ayers. Nellie said she heard the screams and could see Catherine downstairs while Jesse went up. But Catherine, interestingly, didn't testify to having heard Jesse scream, even though she was right within hearing distance. Only that uh, Jesse came downstairs and said, Bill is dead. And go away, candy lady. That last part is paraphrased. <laughs> I wonder how that works, though. If they're both testifying and those conflict, do you just write them both off? Kind of, yes. I feel like unless one of them seems to have more credibility than the other in some way, shape, or form, either established by one side or the other. Okay, so this this is where I would go, and this is why I'm not a lawyer, because immediately I would watch this and be like, those two teamed up and did it. <laughs> That's what we're going with. They can't get matching things, and they were both there. Mm-hmm. You're damn right they were both there, but Jesse was not. <laughs> <laughs> that maid is like, this dude, this fireman dude, He's making up concoctions for me to clean with. Where does he get off? Like, yeah. <laughs> smell it, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> smell my cyanide concoction. It was the maid. <laughs> it was totally Catherine. The store clerk who had helped fill Jesse's order said that she bought oxalic acid and cyanide of potassium the night before Bill's death. The main pharmacist also helped with the order, and the clerk testified that the pharmacist told Jesse... Cyanide is a very dangerous poison. And she replied, I know it is. And I feel like a lot depends on tone of voice there. Because you could say that several different ways. You could say it's snotty like, I know it is. You could say it just calmly like, I know it is. Or you could say, I know it is. Exactly. <laughs> Jessie had claimed before that she wasn't warned about the dangers of cyanide. Nobody had bothered to tell her. About oxalic acid, it is also toxic. 5 to 15 grams can kill a person. But there would be outward symptoms like ulcerations of the mouth, vomiting, blood, shock, convulsions, twitching, but also cardiac collapse. So that's in there too. And also you're supposed to avoid contact between oxalic acid and metals. So a lot going on here between the oxalic acid, the cyanide, and the fact that they were trying to put it on the water heater or water tank. Then we have some testimony from Jesse's next-door neighbor, Fanny Hoffman, whom Jesse had claimed as the source of recommendations about cyanide being used for cleaning brass and other metals. And Fanny Hoffman was like, nope, I just use regular polish like a normal person. But it actually, in this day and time, it actually was quite common to clean brass with, with this combination. Oxalic acid was used in Brasso, which was recommended to people to clean buttons on their army uniforms. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. So it was common. That's fascinating. I mean, we know about a lot of things that were common. And I'm not saying it was safe, yeah. <laughs> but it was common. Yeah. And then uh, there's this little moment that's kind of sweet. Oh, geez. Quote, A touch of levity crept into the usually somber proceedings when John J. Barrett, brother fireman, told of teaching Costello to dance in the fire station three days before he died. Bill remarked that inasmuch as the fireman's ball was coming, he didn't want to be a wallflower, so we used to turn on the radio and waltz around with him and show him a few steps. Aww. I know. It's, very, it's actually very, very sweet. Because maybe he was finally coming out of his grief. 
and a little ab- bit. Yeah, and able to, you know, maybe try being a husband again. It comes out in court that the investigation had been instigated by Jesse's father. Bill's brother, John, testified that Jesse came up to him the day after the death and said, What do you think of that bastard of a father of mine, John? He went down last night to dive Pierce and Murphy, that's the chief of police and a detective, and they had Eddie in there giving him the third degree. And of course, I'm improvising bastard or assuming bastard because, once again, it was the journalist bleep. John Costello then told her that she shouldn't talk like that, and I just imagine she probably heard that a lot. Yes. Yes. He also testified that she'd said she'd talked to Eddie and confirmed all of this about her dad going to start the investigation, and that at the moment, Jessie had not been on speaking terms with her father due to the affair. Specifically, he disapproved of it, he knew about it, didn't like it, and they had fought and she wasn't talking to him. And then, this is an interesting quote, Blandly, Costello, a traveling auditor, repeated for the court profanity which he said he had heard the widow use on different occasions. As he spoke, Mrs. Costello gazed intently at him, listening to every word. I love that they have him blandly just listing profanity. (laughs) These are the words she says all the time. (laughs) Bleep, 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 bleep. He must have been, as a traveling auditor, he must have been truly boring if they could use that adverb in describing his demonstration of her profanity. And especially profanity in a courtroom. I mean, usually when somebody is testifying and maybe say they have to report what somebody said and there's profanity in it, they'll usually look to the judge and be like, can I do this verbatim or should I do a little self-editing? for appropriateness. But you know what? I'm not going to lie. So I think the uh, commentary from Jesse's dad is my favorite on the stand interview. (laughs) I absolutely think it is. Even though he kind of double-crossed her a little bit. But, I mean, I love it. I love it. Apparently, they had argued and she had delivered a profanity-heavy outburst and declaration that Bill had better watch himself because, quote, I'll damned well show you that I have brains when I get ready to use them. And Jesse's dad, Bill would never have done that if he knew Jesse as well as he thought he did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. I love it. I love it. Like, he was just like, he didn't know her well enough to to know not to push her buttons because that bitch is crazy. (laughs) Oh, my. I have more from her dad on the stand here and there, too, and some discussions of other discussions that were happening. Yeah, he definitely, he he knew his daughter. Oh, he did. Yeah, he may not have approved of her, but he knew her, and I, I think I think he still accepted her for everything. Mostly. Yeah, yeah, mostly. Yeah. I would say, if anything, the estrangement was maybe more on her side. And he did swoop in and help take care of the kids when she was in jail. Yeah. So there's that, too. I I think her dad really wanted to do the right thing. I think he did. I think he was very much, especially being sort of a member of the fire and police community, I think that he was like, well, if I I don't do this, I'm going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. If I do it, I'm going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. But there's the right thing and there's doing nothing. And sometimes the right thing is the hardest thing. Yeah. Frequently, the right thing is the hardest thing. Costello, that's John Costello, Bill's brother, 
then said that the very morning of the death, Jesse's father had seen Eddie McMahon in the house and told him to leave. But as Eddie started to go, Jesse went to the door and said, the hell with him. This is my house and you can come back if you want to. That's the day of the death. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And also that same day, John Costello and Jesse argued because he wanted his brother buried in a Catholic cemetery and she wanted him buried next to uh, his mother at Cedar Grove Cemetery. He called her cruel for insisting he be buried anywhere but a Catholic cemetery. He's currently in St. Mary's Cemetery, so either Jesse relented or they reburied him in a Catholic cemetery after the exhumation. So, Which is possible. Yeah. I would think they would just put him next to his son. That would make sense. I think I found the son's burial place. Oh, okay, great. Um, Good work. So they don't have a junior here, but mm. it is William Costello passed away, buried anyway, January 26th of 1931. Got the internment number. Very little here, but it's St. Joseph Cemetery where William Jr. Interesting. I believe is is buried. Okay. I wonder if uh, Jesse's mom is buried there. Because there's also... The question of why might she be against him being buried in a Catholic cemetery that'll come up, and also how that influences the talk about what kind of a death it might have been. Because, you know, at first there were some people saying maybe it was a suicide, and there's the whole idea that the Catholic Church, at least at the time, did not allow burial of suicides in the cemeteries. Jesse B. Burnett Fife is at Cedar Grove Cemetery. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she wanted him to be at Cedar Grove with... Yeah, why didn't she want him to go with their son? Probably because he was in a Catholic cemetery, and she was trying to really push this idea that it might be a suicide. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah. That does come up. A neighbor testified that Jesse... Jesse and the candy lady did not get along well. There was there obviously. Was, yeah, there was Emily on both sides there. She referred to the candy lady in a profane manner and said, she sat there waiting for her money, although Bill was dead upstairs, and then unleashed some profanity, of course. Then we have the kiss and tell cop, Big Boy himself, testifying for the prosecution. So Eddie McMahon, star witness, takes the stand. Star witness for the prosecution, because the defense has their own star witness. And that's fun. It's funny. This is funny to me. Every article takes pains to mention Jesse's age. 31-year-old widow. Mm-hmm. 31-year-old. 31. 31. And the only time we get Eddie McMahon's age is when they say he was several years younger than her. But never... <sighs> It was frustrating me, and I could not find him on Find a Grave. I couldn't find any sort of hints here or there about when he might have been born. That information is not really out there, so it was kind of frustrating. It's not a huge deal, but it just seems rather odd that they're always mentioning her age but never mentioning his. I think a little of the misogyny of the press in the day, where age is definitely more of a thing for women than it is for men. Yeah, certainly. So he takes the stand, and he tells their story. He says they first met when he was on traffic duty. She pulled up to him and said, How would you like to be in here? Whoa! (laughs) Yep. 
I mean, did she mean her car? Or did she mean her vagina? We don't know. Both. <laughs> it was both. It was both. He then saw her around town a few more times, including at a penny sale at a fire station. It doesn't specify that it was Bill's fire station, but how many can they have, really? Well, you never know. I mean, you do have, you know, volunteer fire departments and, and such peppered around. And that night, the night of the penny sale, she swung up as he was on Grove Street, and he said, why don't we go for a drive? And they did. They went to a lover's lane, and he put the moves on her. They met nearly every night in the ensuing weeks. Usually, they would go to a lover's lane in Jesse's car, and this was happening while he was on duty. Went on for over three months. Such a good cop. Very good cop, yeah. Doing, doing your job. If, if, if doing your job is doing Jesse Costello. I don't think that's in his job description somehow. No, but he did it like it was. He really did, yeah. He was like, I should be up for a promotion soon for how well I'm doing at this job. He would also use the Costello's car on patrol and for personal use, charging gas purchases to Bill. Wow. Yep, yep. And insisted that Bill had given him permission to do this because they were on friendly terms. They were friends, though, which is... Kind of strange. It is. And that did seem to bother him. And also his wife was not doing well physically and health-wise. And he couldn't stop thinking about what they were doing to Bill. So he did try to end it. And he reported Jesse as saying, Oh, you're no sport. You aren't hurting anybody but yourself. Kind of not true. Kind of not true. Then, when his wife went into the hospital for confinement to have their baby... He got talked into moving into the Costello house. And Jesse would wait up for him until he got off duty at 2 a.m. Or if Bill was on duty, Eddie would come home and find her in his room waiting for him. And then, you know, what happened next? Wow. She also gave them the very first clothing the baby wore. It's, it's so tangled and weird, honestly. Wow. It's very tangled and weird. Pretty much as soon as his wife was let out of the hospital, Eddie ended up basically changing places with her. He went in to get his appendix out. Jesse visited him. Eddie said that Jesse was very improper in the hospital. So I'm thinking at the very least, you know, some hand stuff under the covers, maybe? Well, his wife just gave birth. Yes, 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 yes. So, yeah, there's this whole thing going on with Jesse and Eddie and the hospital. The DA did have him explain all of this action in detail, but it's glossed over in the papers, of course. It's very succinctly described in veiled terms. There was a book with his uncensored testimony, and it is out of print. I saw that because I was trying to get it. And they're like, well, you can uh, try to get to the Harvard Library and look at their microfilm. And I'm like, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. That's super helpful for me. I'll be up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating. I wanted that so badly. I really did. I was like, can somebody please just like take screenshots and post it online? Yes. 
I am dying I feel for like that there pool. was some real good stuff in there. I feel like that too. It's very upsetting. And that sold like hotcakes at first too. A hospital supervisor testified about this time when Eddie was in the hospital, said that Jesse was there nearly every night, stayed past visiting hours, and used profanity when asked to leave. Seems like the hospital supervisor was kind of in the same mindset as Jesse's father. Because when asked if she couldn't have done something about Jesse overstaying her welcome, she said, I didn't want to throw her out because I knew the type of woman I was dealing with, and I knew I'd need the whole police force. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. McMahon, Eddie McMahon, sobbed on the stand. He had trouble answering some questions at times. He said Jesse had been the dominant force in the relationship. And it honestly would not have gone on so long if it weren't for her aggressiveness. He said she tried to turn him against his wife and said that one time when he told her he was discouraged, she said, I have something here that will end it all. I think that something may actually have been between her legs. Yeah, (laughs) well, and it was also said she more or less dragged him into her bed. Yeah, yeah. Well, she started with dragging him into her car, then the bed. <laughs> but he he really, as much as I think he was trying to pawn all the responsibility off on her, I think he was at least 40% responsible because first she came on to him. Well, and it's not like he wasn't getting a hard on because obviously she would have moved on if he wasn't. Exactly. And then Takes se- two, folks. Takes two. Yeah, it seems like she made the first move, but he enthusiastically made the second move is my reading of, of how that story went. Also, he said that Bill threatened his wife that if she didn't stop seeing McMahon, I will break you in halves if you don't keep away from that boy in there. So some physical threats there. He reported that Jesse called him the morning of the death and said, Eddie, it's come. And she also had said she was kind of glad it had happened in a strange way. Then his wife took the stand. This poor woman. My God. But we do have a little bit of court couture here. She was dressed in a white hat and white dress with a printed silk coat. She was said to be composed and spoke in a firm, modulated voice. So this woman has some composure. She has some dignity. And I I love... While we're talking about courtroom couture, <laughs> she's in white. Jesse's dressed in black, and I love that imagery. It's so perfect. It really it's is so perfect. It's almost like they're playing to the crowd, the both of them. I feel like. Do you remember that that movie, Death Becomes Her? Yes, that's what I'm seeing in my head, oh, and yeah. I'm waiting for one of them to rip a hole in the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Any second now. Mrs. McMahon, we never really get a first name for her, at least I didn't see any in the reporting, testified that she left the maternity hospital only for her husband to go back in to get his appendix removed, and he asked her to stay with the Costellos. Said, oh, they'll take care of you and the baby, which is just weird. It is really weird. This is, people behave very strangely in all of this. It's, a lot of things are, I I have questions about and I don't understand. I wonder... With all the weirdness involved with these two couples, if it wasn't like a swingers relationship or an open relationship where they would kind of all maybe 
And that's obviously not something you want to come out. So I think everybody else was like, mm, I was not involved in this. And, mm, nope. <laughs> Just my husband and her having that affair. What meanies. Amber, you somehow always find a way to put more sex into a situation than already existed. There is always more sex <laughs> in a situation than you know about. That is very true. <laughs> that is true. I don't know. It's, I, I would say that there is certainly a possibility. That's a valid option. It's a valid possibility because certainly that's not something that just started like in the 70s, you know? No. <laughs> certainly it was going on. It just wasn't talked about. Well, and they were living together. And I mean, Jesse was, was at the hospital when she was giving birth. Like, it seems like they're a lot closer than just I'm sleeping with your husband. You know what I mean? Like, I, I almost feel like at least the wife kind of knew what was going on. And was like, that's fine. Your husband's not putting out. Go for it. <laughs> I'm pregnant again. Get him off my back for a while. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a couple different possibilities for what might have been going on behind the scenes. It could just be as it's basically like laid out in the court testimony. But we also know that people had a lot more reason to hide that than they do now. And they still have a reason to hide it if something like this comes up. Uh, at this point... Jesse has been calm and composed through the whole testimony, even both Eddie McMahon and his wife, to the extent that she was being called the smiling widow. But the next witness for the prosecution would wipe the smile right off her face. That was the undertaker, whose explanation of the embalming and preparation for burial broke Jesse down into tears. But... Quote, a few minutes later, however, she brushed away her tears with a handkerchief, looked again at the witness, and smiled. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Then a toxicologist spoke about how poison was found in the brain, kidneys, and liver. Said they had taken the cyanide can from the Costello house, fed some of the crystals in it to guinea pigs, and they died in a few minutes. <sighs> The toxicologist and a pharmacist also testified that it probably wasn't inhalation of fumes, but a capsule of cyanide that caused his death. Because there was this idea that there was some accidental inhalation of the fumes, maybe as he was mixing up the concoction, something along those lines. They found red spots the size of dimes on the walls of the stomach and said that that indicated it had been a quick death. There were signs of congestion caused by an irritant. More of the stomach would have been red if the poison had been present for longer before death. They said cyanide took two to five minutes to take effect and paralyze the nervous system, and that someone in that state would maybe take five or six steps before just falling right over. And they said the rate of evaporation with the mixture that had been whipped up would have been too slow to have actually caused that death. It wouldn't have evaporated fast enough to be a, a strong enough dose that it could actually cause the, the effects that it caused. Then we have Dr. George McGrath, medical examiner and criminologist mentioned earlier, one of the ones who also tested the exhumed body. He testified that despite Jesse's claim that she saw her husband alive at 9 a.m., he'd actually died before that and that the body had been moved from the bed to the hallway. And he brings up as his proof liver mortis, 
which is the settling of the blood in the body after death. And that can tell you what position somebody was in when they died. Didn't really line up with the place and position he was found in. He was on his back in the hall, but blood had settled in the upper chest near the right shoulder, on the right side of the right leg, and on the inner side of the left leg, as if he'd been laying on his side Mm -hmm. when he died. And the testimony on his time of death really depended on which expert you were questioning, but they all were close enough to 9 a.m. that really I find it completely irrelevant because that was the time when Jesse found the body. So it's like, oh, it was sometime between 8 and 9. It was 8.30 to 9. It's all in that same window that's so close and there's such a margin of error that I, I just found it completely irrelevant. But it is the fact that they testified and what they said about that time of death relieved Jesse's oldest daughter of having to testify for the defense that she'd talked to her dad before she left for school that day. Because that was going to be how they established that the time of death was later than the yeah. prosecution was trying to say it was. So then it's the defense's turn. Bum, bum, bum! Indeed, because we have quite some fun here to have. Her defense experts testified that they hadn't found cyanide in the stomach. And then Jesse took the stand. I love her. And I love <laughs> this description from the Rutland Daily Herald in the torrid atmosphere of Superior Court. No time before and no time after have those words been printed or spoken. No. <laughs> torrid. Superior Court atmosphere is torrid. Torrid. Well, big boy's been around. And then they say, In the murky courtroom in which judge, jury, attorneys, and spectators continually mopped perspiration from their brows, the widow, who appeared to be the coolest person in the courtroom, energetically strode to the stand. She, of course, denied the love affair... And then we have Mrs. Costello scaled the gamut of emotions from convulsive tears when she buried her face in her handkerchief through smiles and through bitterness when the corners of her mouth dropped and her heavy, dark brows lifted. She claimed that Eddie McMahon was just, at first, the butter and egg man. Yes, yes, I had that too because you had said that he had pulled her over and I was like, I have that uh, she said that he came to her door selling butter and eggs. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, they both had different stories here about how they met. About four years ago. Yeah, yeah. And they became friends enough that she did visit him in the hospital when he had his appendix out. But she said that she visited the hospital frequently anyhow. Maybe doing charity work or something along those lines. Just have an excuse to get away from her children, I assume. Or just randomly popping into rooms to do some hand stuff. Everyone likes the hand stuff. Everyone does. She denied accusations of impropriety at his bedside. So she's denying that she helped him. Okay, no hand stuff. (laughs) Yeah, according to her, no hand stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She then said that Eddie McMahon was a stool pigeon, and he told his story because someone had pumped it into him. (laughs) He was certainly pumping into something. Right? And then when she's being cross-examined by the prosecution, it seems to get a little heightened from the Rutland Daily Herald. Glibly, her dark eyes blazing with transient anger, the widow snapped her answers to the pointed questions of brusque and relentless D.A. Hugh Craig, 
who for nearly three hours subjected her to a rapid-fire cross-examination. I just wish I could have been there to see the interplay between these two. I feel like it was like the the ping pong match, but like the super good ping pongers that are like, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I picture. Yes. I also like the writing there. I do. Yeah. I really appreciated the Rutland Daily Herald for things like her dark eyes blazing with transient anger. It's beautiful. She said that she'd bought cyanide twice before that incident with no prescription and had never been warned about being a deadly poison, although she admitted she knew it had poisonous properties. She denied killing her husband, of course, and insisted she always loved him, of course. But he was, in reality, ailing. That indigestion. <laughs> that damn indigestion. And as many tums as I gave him, it just never helped. And she's a slippery one on the stand. I... I have to admire her for this. This is something. So we're going to do a little table read of the cross-examination of D.A. Hugh Craig of Smiling Widow Jesse Costello with Amber playing the prosecutor and I am playing jaw-dropper Jesse. Did you tell this jury that the pharmacist did not tell you it was a deadly poison? I wouldn't say he didn't. I'd say I didn't hear him. When the detectives went to your house, you told them you had no poison in the house, didn't you? I didn't have any at the time. You had empty poison cans, didn't you? Yes, but he asked me if I had poison in the house, and I told him no. I love that. <laughs> She's so slippery. She's really catching them on technicalities, which is impressive. Yeah. She's catching the lawyers on technicalities. That's yeah. their job. <laughs> you said you didn't have any poison. Well, I didn't currently. <laughs> I had used it all. <laughs> now... This part of her testimony is pretty heartbreaking. She said she knew her husband was dead the moment she found him because three years prior she'd found her baby deceased in his crib and said her husband had the same white look. Mm. That is very sad. But she also accused her deceased husband of abusing their children, said that when their nine-year-old was four months old, he had picked her up from the crib and thrown her to the bed. So just tossing a kid around, and he's not really around to defend himself, so we don't know, honestly. It could be character assassination, it could be true. We don't know. She it got... could be the reason that the other one died. <laughs> she got in some hot water with the judge because he got pissed off that she kept talking after answering a question. She would give her answer and then just keep going on. And he said, let her go. She will say something she'll be sorry for eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it does come out that her husband had suffered from fainting spells previously. I thought men didn't have those. I know. Well, no, they faint. We swoon. Oh. Or they pass out and we swoon. Swoon. Swoon onto my fainting couch. She said he'd been sick to his stomach and up all night walking the floor the night before his death. And the district attorney was like, well, why was only one side of the bed slept in? And she'd said, well, he was just so sick that he slept on top of the covers. She has an answer for everything. Altogether, she spent almost three days on the stand. That's... Excessive? <sighs> Excessive, and I can only imagine stressful. It doesn't seem to have been for her, at least not outwardly. But I feel like being on the stand 
when you're already on trial for three days, it's got to be so incredibly stressful. Now, it's like two days, and then the third day is a Monday, so a weekend passes in between. There's an article about how she was disappointed that her children couldn't visit her because her brother came to bring them, but he wasn't too thrilled about the throng of photographers at the jail entrance, so he took them off on another outing. So her attorneys consoled her by having her come to the jail door and pose for photographs. They were like, let's turn that frown upside down. Let's see the smiling widow. <laughs> snap, snap. So then they had her father and three other witnesses on the stand to testify that Bill had been acting strangely before his death. He was melancholy, said he was dissatisfied with life. So they're really pushing that suicide theory. They also said that Dr. Pomeroy himself had asked when they tried to get him to intercede on the issue of where they would bury Bill, will the authorities allow a suicide to be buried in St. Mary's Cemetery? And then Bill's brother fainted. Just runs in the family, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if, like, at the time, they just said fainting. In reality, I picture him, like, punching a hole in the wall and storming off. And they're like, well, we can't put that, because then it seems like they all have anger issues. Yeah. They fainted. I, I feel like the punching a hole in the wall and storming off was much more accepted and normalized back then. <laughs> so I feel like they'd just be like, nah, he punched a hole in the wall and stormed off. Maybe. Yeah. Weird family of fainters, apparently. Yeah. I mean, there could have honestly been something, some anxiety issue or even some physical issue that caused them to faint. And it, Well, and you know what? Things weren't really diagnosed back then. So if they did have an anxiety issue, they could have had like a panic attack. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had one weird fainting issue that I went for a whole bunch of testing afterwards. I fainted once. They tested the crap out of me. And I still don't know why it happened. Because you just felt the need to swoon. Christy. I felt the need to swoon into my bathtub at 3 a.m. <laughs> and... Woke up with the faucet next to my head. So that could have been fun. <laughs> could have been fun. <laughs> I'm glad I fell the way I fell. And then Jackson would have been on trial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he would have been the not smiling widower. No. So Jesse's dad also said he had kicked Eddie out the day of the death due to rumors of the affair and also threatened to break every bone in Eddie's body. But when he did, Eddie asked to speak with him privately. So they went out by the garage, and Eddie said, As true as I have a God to answer to, I never had a thing to do with your daughter except clean, wholesome friendship. Mm-hmm. Okay, big boy. Sure. But then he's on the stand telling explicit sexual details. Mm-hmm. This is what I don't understand. He was there that morning, yeah? Mm-hmm. And he is saying that he had an affair with her. Mm-hmm. Why was he not a suspect? That's a good question. I don't think he was there at the time the death occurred because Jesse called him after it occurred to let him know. But... But he was still there, so he could have, in theory, been like, hey, I know your indigestion's been bothering you and we're friends, so I got this from the pharmacy. If you want to try it, it worked really well for me. Yeah. And just leave it on the bedstand. And then yeah. you're not there when it happens. So why was he never even really a suspect? In any of this. I do question that. And I feel like there's still something shady I can't quite pinpoint in that whole little field trip they took during his interrogation. Yes. Yes. There's something questionable there that I just 
can't come up with a plausible theory for, but I feel like it fits in somewhere with this whole idea of why he wasn't the suspect. Maybe he had another lover. Maybe. Who? Do you have an idea or? No. Well, maybe it was a candy lady. Maybe that's why she was such a bitch. <laughs> maybe it was the maid. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm wondering if the field trip wasn't to go see his other lover. To establish an alibi. To establish an alibi mm. of where he was. Keeping in mind, this is all in the realm of rampant speculation. <laughs> so we're definitely in that territory. But yeah, a secret alibi that they didn't want to become public certainly does Could have been fit a the bill. Could have been a doctor because he was there getting a syphilis test. There you go. Another option. <laughs> yes. Something that he didn't want made public. Yeah. Um, so I would think probably like a, a doctor or a, another lover would be a viable field trip. Like I have an alibi, but let's not talk about it, guys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a really good point. I like that theory. So the defense puts up some doctors to try to insinuate that, in fact, Bill could have inhaled the poison or even absorbed it through a cut in his skin. One of them said that the red spots in the stomach could have been from an aspirin tablet. And he may have been taking a lot of aspirin with his indigestion. The indigestion he was suffering. Or perhaps the red spots were bleeding ulcers and he's been trying to tell everybody for years. Yes, <laughs> that could have been the chronic indigestion. So the defense closes its case, and then the prosecution brings up some rebuttal witnesses. That does not go super well for them. The issue in question was whether a doctor had prescribed to Jesse's mother, three years prior, some capsules of medicine that had been found in the house, because they're trying to say it wasn't the cyanide that Jesse bought, it was some other capsules of medicine, and he took them. Maybe there was cyanide in them, but it wasn't done by Jesse. Dr. Pomeroy took the stand, and the prosecution had him testify that he'd never prescribed capsules or medicine for Mrs. Fife, Jesse's mother. And I, I guess another idea was that these capsules could have been something that Bill Costello would have used to take his own life. So the defense got him on cross-examination. I guess we can do another table reading. You say you never prescribed capsules for Mrs. Fife, doctor? No, sir, I did not. Slowly, dramatically, Jesse's attorney advanced on the gray-haired physician as he pulled from his pocket a little square box. The box, he explained, had contained capsules prescribed for Mrs. Fife by Dr. Pomeroy. If the prescription is right and the name is right, it must be true. The widow smiled openly as her attorney scored. I love the verbiage there. <laughs> it's very dramatic. This feels like an Elle Woods courtroom moment, too. <laughs> you went swimming right after your perm? <laughs> exactly. I don't think so. Look at those curls. It's the moment every attorney wants to have and dreams of having and probably will never have. That <laughs> moment of just catching somebody in a lie. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. And when they also had multiple witnesses testify that you shouldn't clean copper with cyanide for many reasons. Now, regarding the cyanide, there were some questions as to whether the tests performed that found the cyanide were done right. This also goes back to the embalming fluid that Jessie had her little premonition about. 
So the prosecution was trying to counteract the one defense witness who'd said he didn't find cyanide. And then, oops, we didn't realize we were supposed to mix sodium hydroxide with the stomach tissues in order to isolate the embalming fluid. And yeah, that's how we got negative tests for cyanide in the stomach. (laughs) So it's all very, it's kind of confusing trying to figure out exactly what's going on there. And I never really felt like even through following this case through like one single paper through the entire thing that gave good details, I never really felt like I got a straight answer. But you know what? There was another thing, and it was a one-off just in one paper that they had said that there was enough cyanide in his body to kill 12 men or something like that. And, like, again, that was just a one-off. One paper had said it. Interesting. But then other people were like, there was barely any in there. It's fine. I feel like it was enough to kill 12 men. There would have been more than just some dime-sized spots in his stomach. I mean, I'm yeah. again, I'm no forensic medical expert here. Forensic expert, medical expert. I am neither, and I'm not both either. So, yeah, it's very curious, and I feel like it's understandable if maybe the jury was confused on this point because it seemed to just go back and forth and then never really settle anywhere. And there was a lot of haziness and cloudiness in what actually was found and what that indicated. Yeah, well, and that paper actually said it was an unattributed remark. Oh, so unsourced. Don't even know where that came from. Ah, yeah. Could have came from uh, somebody making a podcast about it. Just said something. It was (laughs) rampant speculation. Could have come from. And all of a sudden, Big Boy had a third lover and had syphilis. You never know. Could have come from the paper publisher's son. Yeah. (laughs) Writing in a letter as an anonymous woman. (laughs) We've seen that before. Now, through all of this, the smiling widow smiles on. Again, from the Daily Herald. If the widow was downcast, there was no sign of it today. She raced a guard into the courthouse, leaping the steps two at a time, and as she reached the upper corridors, the strains of Till We Meet Again rose out from the chambers where the jury, in whose hands her fate rests, harmonized. People, this was the singing jury. It was a singing jury, and I was waiting for us to get to this part (laughs) because I was so curious if you were going to bring it up. Yes, absolutely, because this is... This was a whole thing. That was their deal. They made a little barbershop quartet and they would sing to kind of relieve the stress and take the edge off. And it seems like sometimes they their song choices were almost maybe a little pointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Till We Meet Again, I looked up the lyrics to that. It's, it's not very long because they could make two and a half minutes stretch out with eight lines. So <laughs> smile the while you kiss me sad adieu. When the clouds roll by, I'll come to you. Then the skies will seem more blue. Down in lover's lane, my dearie. Wedding bells will ring so merrily. Every tear will be a memory. So wait and pray each night for me till we meet again. There's just something there. Yeah. Do you have any of the other songs they sang? I didn't write them down. Sweet Adelaide, My Wild Irish Rose, and Let Me Call You Sweetheart were among some of the favorites. There you go. Yes. I feel like they might be a little biased. The night before closing arguments, much like royalty on a balcony, Jesse is waving to the adoring crowds from a jailhouse window. 
That just kills me. I could just picture her doing like the princess die wave, like the beauty pageant, cup the hand and turn it. Oh my God. It, well, and it's no wonder the jurors were under her spell because she would actually talk to them in the middle of, of everything going on. She would just be like chit-chatting with them. And it, it said that they were unable to resist her loveliness. Yeah. They fell right under her spell too. Like you said, it's, it's everybody. Everybody this one came in contact with was she a witch? She might have been. She might have been an actual witch. And here's the thing. So the 12 men that they had picked for this jury, they made sure that all of them were married. Yep. Yep. Mattered not. Mattered not one bit. The last day of the trial, there were 52 reporters in the courtroom. And then after five weeks of trial, the defense and state rested, leaving the jury more than a million words of testimony to pour over, quote, to fashion the future of a comely defendant. It's so many adjectives for her, Jesus. There was a last-minute flurry of questions as to whether Jesse would take the stand again as a rebuttal and also to offer a personal plea to the jury that would not be considered official testimony. And I have never, ever seen this before. They allowed it. Oh, my gosh. They allowed they allowed it, Amber. I, I couldn't... When I read that, I was like, no way. They, they, they wouldn't allow that. And then the, like, the next paragraph, they were like, nope, they did. <laughs> Stenographer, get out. Yeah, <laughs> right? So, just after the DA finished off his closing argument with this, if the spirit of Bill Costello came back to this world, it would say, she murdered me. Give her no more chances. After he said that... Jesse Costello stepped up to the jury box and spoke directly to them. The district attorney has spoken. He said I did not love my husband, but he did not know my husband and he does not know me. The only thing I am asking you is to send me back to my three children. I love my husband and I didn't kill him, as he said. I just can't believe they let her do that. I just, I can't. It's got to be the only time <laughs> in history, practically. And the defense's closing statement is that the state had nothing but conjecture. She leaves the courtroom cheered on by the biggest crowd yet. And then the jury deliberated for one... Hold oh. on, though. Ooh, okay. The judge had something before he sent the jury to deliberation. And this blew my mind. The defendant is not to be convicted on suspicion. If you have a reasonable doubt that the deceased was murdered, you will find the defendant not guilty. Well, I really feel like he's just laying out the, the basic premise of reasonable doubt there. Probably. And then he continued on. He goes, the Commonwealth relies heavily on the testimony of Edward McMahon. His testimony has been stoutly attacked and defended. It is of great importance that, and you will submit it to a careful and thorough test. Much of his testimony deals with sex relations. In judging the truth, it would be well to remember that sexual influence exerts tremendous power over thoughts and actions. Interesting. So it's almost in a weird way. He's like, if, if there is a doubt in your mind mm -hmm. that this did not come at her hand, do not tell me she's guilty. <laughs> you know, I, I do feel like he's leaning. He's leaning her way. He's definitely leaning. He's trying to sound like a judge, mm -hmm. but he's also like, if their best witness is some guy who says he's been having sex with her, let's ignore that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does have that feeling to it. 
The jury deliberated for one hour and 43 minutes. And when they came back with a verdict for the buxom 31-year-old widow, it was not guilty. A newspaper man actually dropped a slip of paper with the news out the window for the crowd, and they let loose with, quote, vociferous cheering. So she was acquitted. It's crazy, honestly. Now, fascinatingly, after all her courting of the crowds and the press while on trial, she wanted no more of that in the immediate aftermath. She slipped out a back door, went back home to her children and her father, and of course, followed by huge crowds. I mean, there were crowds just packed outside their house. You probably couldn't drive down the street. It's bonkers. She got telegraphs of congratulations all day. And her father was the only one that really said much to the press, and that was just that they would probably be moving out of Peabody. But then they say, no, we're not going <laughs> to. I feel like he just kept walking outside with a cane going, get off my lawn! Yeah, basically, don't you dare cross this line. Her lawyer said she would not be granting interviews or photographs because she had offers from newspapers, motion pictures, and vaudeville to consider. She spends her first full day of freedom at the beach with her family. Meanwhile, the newspapers have this to say. This was what I felt like was probably an editorial. It wasn't necessarily marked as such, but it had the feeling. As 12 good men and true have said that Jesse Costello, tragically widowed, was not guilty, further comment on her guilt or innocence would be improper. Most folks up in this neck of the woods will say the kid was clever and had a lot of luck. Passing off over the kiss-and-tell policeman, perhaps the Almighty had something good, true, and lovely in view when that being was created. Let it be said that Jessie and her distinguished counsel staged a grand show for the court, jury, and newspaper readers, and sold out on it. It pays to be a showman, in Salem courts at least, just for pure dramatic statistics. As to seeing Jessie on a mere theater stage, she couldn't begin to act as well in that medium as she did for the gentlemen of the jury. Dear, confiding, sob-sisters with pants on? Huh? I think they're calling the jury sob-sisters. With pants. But they're men, yeah, so they are wearing pants. Yeah, I actually... Literally stared at that phrase for for minutes, trying to figure it out. And when she I actually grimaced when she said it. Yeah, yeah, because I was confused, and then it occurred to me as I was speaking out loud. I was like, "Oh, they're saying the jury is okay," because I thought it was some random kind of like slang for the day. Like they are ending it by by calling their readers sob sisters with pants on. I'm like, then I thought about pants and. Okay, it, it, all, it all clicked. <laughs> I feel like it's just a nice way of that reporter saying a bunch of pussies. Basically, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This, this blows my mind so much. Two days after the verdict, if that, she goes to the jewelry store. And tells him to make her a grill. Owned by one of the jurors. Oh. And buys herself a watch bracelet. Oh. The proprietor, who for a month sat directly opposite the widow in Salem Court, did not recognize her for some minutes during which she looked at several bracelets. As he finally stumbled, Mrs. Costello smiled, proffered her hand, and thanked him for his part in the verdict. The brass ovaries, honestly. Wow, that is some brass ovaries. Yep, it's impressive. Then, very quickly, there was news 
that she'd signed a 10-week vaudeville contract to go on tour for $2,500 a week. That's $52,000 per week. Wow. She was to appear in a skit with two men, but then one by one, the towns barred her from appearing within their borders, even after, or maybe especially after, she previewed her skit for them. The board of selectmen in one town said, Public decency and public morals forbid the commercialization of such a tragic event. So you know, her appearing with two men, it was going to be some sort of vaudevillian reenactment of the death slash murder of Bill and the affair and all that stuff. She was banned from stage in all states but Maine, and the tour seems to be canceled. One editorial said... She was making dramatic shows of murder trials and putting the principals into shows afterwards is treating our public institutions with disrespect. And I would like to introduce them to literally everything we yeah. do nowadays. <laughs> this right here, um, <laughs> the law and order inspired by true events. True crime media of all sorts. I'm like, hi, you, we're doing it. Yeah. They, they were they were doing it back then with like pulp magazines and stuff. And they'd be magazines. so disappointed. They would really, yes. There was what I hope was a joke in the paper, but I don't think it was, about the jury also wanting to appear as a singing act in a vaudeville show. <laughs> Everybody's it, trying to cash out. It <laughs> might not have been uh, a, a joke. Yes, yes. There were some reports that she got $1,100, $23,000 today, to go on Broadway for four days and sold the rights of her story for $2,400, $50,000 today. Really, it was very much a case as far as the money amounts and the actual events that happened to prevent her from doing this, whether she made much money off of it is definitely a case of sources very wildly. Yeah, because I did see another thing that she was offered to perform in a burlesque house to do a skit, like with about her relationship with Big Boy McMahon, mm -hmm. but she rejected it because it was so tawdry. Yeah, and then eventually she got a little desperate and came back and tried to get it, and they were like, "Your star has faded considerably." Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of up in the air, but it really seems like she. Flamed out a little bit. Hollywood was trying to get her in for screen tests, but there were the whole censorship things with the Hayes Code and everything, and that they shot that down right quick. A lot of modern sources say she didn't get the life insurance from Bill's death, but papers back in the day said that she did, in fact, get the $5,000 life insurance policy on her husband, about $100,000 today. And that he did have a double indemnity clause, which means that in case of a violent death, there would be a doubled payout, and she did not attempt to go for that. So That's probably for the best. It probably is, yeah. yeah. I don't feel like she would have won that. Well, and then her father-in-law died shortly after, and so her kids all got trust funds. Yeah, yeah. So they were pretty much set. And so vaudeville and Hollywood didn't quite work out, so she next tried evangelism. I guess that's one route. She converted to the four-square gospel led by evangelist Amy Semple McPherson. She was appointed head of the four-square gospel's commissary in Boston. She appeared with Amy Semple McPherson drawing such huge crowds that she needed police escorts. Wow. She loved her some policemen, so. 
And then, quote, as head of the commissary, which will be in the basement of the Foursquare Church, Mrs. Costello will dispense food, clothing, and medicine to the poor, as well as offer spiritual assistance to those desiring it. But it seems like she was also sort of performing with and appearing with Amy Semple McPherson. And within two months, McPherson dismissed her and kicked her out because Jessie was drawing bigger crowds and people were more intrigued by her shaking her hips. And so that's how she ended the year in which her husband died and she was put on trial and then almost ended up in vaudeville and Hollywood uh, by being kicked out of evangelist (laughs) sect. I love somebody reported that Jesse Costello could probably upstage God himself when she was in fine form. That is very accurate. I do believe. Yes. Yes. I think they're right. By March of 1934, she was announced as the general treasurer of the Sharky AA, a new Boston boxing club. Really just profession hopping here. In August, the singing jury had a one-year reunion to meet and harmonize some more and invited witnesses and attorneys from the case to join them. Jessie, meanwhile, was opening a nightclub on the Newburyport Turnpike, but it, it seems like maybe more was made of that then was actually the case. It seems like it wasn't, she was, oh, I'm going to open this nightclub. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It seems like she was actually a hostess. So nothing wrong with that, but it was more than people made it seem. She pretty much just spent, 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 and ended up with pretty much no money after all of this. Even at one point had a, a humble farmer offering her marriage. And she said, no, I shall climb again. But she didn't. She faded from public life, lived off of welfare and her deceased husband's $65 a month pension. And on March 15th, 1971, this woman with ovaries of steel died at 68 years old. As for uh, some of the other people involved, Eddie McMahon, of course, was dismissed from the police force. (laughs) Probably a lot of reasons, I'm going to guess the primary one being that he was having sex while on the job. Yeah, that'll that'll do it. Yeah. Do you have what he went on to do? Sell snake oil. Yeah, Mm -hmm. women's tonics. Which is just, that's that's hilarious. It is pretty hilarious. That's hilarious. (laughs) Somewhat awkwardly, her son Bobby went on to be a police chief. Now, there there was something in here that this actually happened back in, in December of 1933, Apparently, when Jesse had all this stuff going on in her heyday, there was a, a five thousand dollars, or we're going to kidnap Bobby. Oh, somebody tried to ransom her, and this was on the, in the Syracuse Journal, December eighteenth of nineteen thirty-three. And the police were saying that they were completely in the dark; they knew nothing of it. And Jesse had said that she had um, received this letter months prior, and then her dad found it and turned it over to the police. Because I think Jesse's going to just stay the hell away from the cops at this point. Um, Well, until her son becomes one, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, My final note is that in my looking for, you know, pinning down dates via find a grave and such, I discovered that there was a Jesse Costello born the same year as her who may have lived in New York State, so not too far I can only imagine how it must have been to have that name in the 30s and be the same age and everything. <laughs> like, that yeah. must have been an experience. Well, because she was born Jessie Fife and then married Costello, and then you have another woman that was probably born with the surname Costello. 
Or she could be married. She could have married into a, a, another branch of a Costello family or a completely separate Costello family. It, it could have been like the tiny where they both had the wife with the same name. The two brothers both married a, a wife of the same first name. Yeah, heck, my uh, husband's grandmother, both of her husbands had the same last name, weren't related to each other. <laughs> she never had to change her last name after she remarried. So, that was handy. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you know, don't have to get new towels or anything. So <laughs> don't have to fill out paperwork. So yeah, that must have been really something to have that same name. I can only imagine if like a Christy Baxter, one of the many people who accidentally give out my email address uh, as their own, uh, ended up murdering somebody. And then I, I had to have that following me around and be like, no, 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 no. Please, please don't Google search me ever. <laughs> no, because honestly, if that happened, we'd be doing a podcast on it immediately. Yeah, it wouldn't matter that it was recent. It no, would have to happen immediately. It would not matter. It at least would have this venue in which to get that out. Uh, so at the very least, I just wish they would stop giving out my email address. Yeah, right? It's really annoying. There's like five of them, seriously. They're Massachusetts, Florida, Texas, California, and somewhere else. I can't remember. Is it all about your car's extended warranty? No, 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 no. It's all it's all across the board. It's it's everything you can imagine. It's invitations and confirmations and uh, receipts. I get a lot of receipts. Oh. I get some confidential uh, legal paperwork sometimes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd think you'd double check your email for that. <laughs> One would think. So, so yeah, that is Jesse Costello, the smiling widow, Jesse Jawdropper. She <laughs> is something else. Oh my gosh. What do you think of this case, honestly? I I like this case. I definitely think there's there's holes. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something going on with Big Boy. He's 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 hiding something or lying about something or like something funky is going on there. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But uh, that whole thing was weird. I love Jesse's dad. I do. Yes, I love him too. He's very honest and he just wants to do what's right even if he, like, he loves his daughter very much but he also needs her to do what's right and in this case it was go to trial in case she did it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it ended up okay. Yeah, it ended up just fine. I mean, he was still living with her after all this. So, I mean, she must have let it go. I am, I would say, 70% she did it. 30% it was some mix, like the, the tests were not accurate because we have so much haziness on that. And what they thought was cyanide was actually not. And maybe he just died young. I mean, it happens. It happened a lot more, as we know, from the life expectancies. I, I think, honestly, that she put cyanide in capsules and probably put it in whatever container he usually took medicine from. Ooh. And so she didn't hand it to him. She just made it available to him. She, she made it available. And she could have done that um at any point prior and then when he got up to take medicine for indigestion took one of those instead i do think that maybe the suicide theory is too easily discounted simply because the understanding of suicide and how people behave in the lead up to it was so less well understood than it is now and even now it's not super well understood, but we have more information, more data. Just, but just the information that you gave about him learning how to dance so yes. he could take her to the ball. He had he was making future plans. Yeah, and that that is a, a 
big thing with with people that are considering suicide a lot of the times is they're not making plans they're giving away things they're not committing to any future anything and he's he's making strides to learn a new skill for a specific future event Mm -hmm. so to me this was definitely not a suicide I think that either Jesse or perhaps big boy McMahon yeah could have just put the pills in the bottle and let him uh, take it at his own time. Yeah. I really like that theory that it was like an indirect murder. Still murder. Oh, yeah. Certainly murder. Replacing somebody's pills with cyanide. Definitely murder. Uh, but, yeah, I definitely like that theory of the case that it was kind of like, I'll just let it happen when it happens. Yeah. And especially her calling up Eddie and if his testimony is accurate and truthful, saying, Eddie, it's come. That they maybe were working together. Yeah, that definitely feels like it could have been a conspiracy. And he just kind of backed out of it. He was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to pretend I wasn't part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Solved. There you go. There you go, folks. We solved it. (laughs) We solved it. You're welcome. So, all right. If you enjoyed our discussion of Jesse Costello, uh, there's always our Patreon if you just want to give us a couple bucks and not commit to anything, you can still get a shout-out on the show by donating us money at using our Gmail address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com, over on PayPal. We've mentioned the social media. We will, in the upcoming weeks, especially towards the end of the month, be able to do more giveaways with, like, a little guess something. Or maybe we'll do something where, instead of guess the case, do, like, trivia or something from the show, so... Making you listen. (laughs) Yeah, some different possibilities there, but I have stickers to give away, and I would like to give them away. So come on over to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can also go to our Redbubble, link in the show notes for merch, and you can buy us a book on Amazon and determine our fate. You can determine what case we do that week or give us suggestions. Use that email address instead of using it PayPal. Just shoot us some suggestions or pop them up on Facebook or, you know, the others. So all Give me are... ideas. Make my life easier. Yes, Amber is begging. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm looking on the list of 200 and winnowing it down to eight, and I'm still like, oh, crap. And then I randomly hear about this case, listening to Savage Appetites, and uh, which, by the way, highly recommend... Uh, that was where I first heard about this book. It's Savage Appetites. I listed in the sh- in the sources, and the link will be in the show notes. But it's by Rachel Monroe. I first heard her, I believe, on You're Wrong About, talking about the victims' rights movement. And that was really fascinating. And then I found Savage Appetites on Scribd. And it's really an interesting book. It's about women and crime and true crime. And I will say that at first, you do feel gently called out. <laughs> as a female consumer of true crime. And then throughout the rest of the book, you definitely feel understood. It's it's definitely a a thorough examination of women who have committed crimes and women who... uh, Wish to commit them. Or are interested in in (laughs) true crime. And so it's very fascinating. I absolutely loved it. So highly recommended. And yeah, that's all my bullshit. If I have more, I don't remember. Rate, review, subscribe. I don't know. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe. Yes. So uh, Amber, what you doing this week? Um, I just drew a blank. I have things. 
<laughs> I know. I always, stuff. I always draw a blank when we do this. I need to start writing it down beforehand. Um, so I'm going to be spending time making a lot of phone calls. Uh, so my daughter's car broke down and we're dealing with that. And I got to get a bus schedule for one of my other kids. And I think I'm meeting a teacher this week. Uh-oh. Oh. That'll be fun. Mm. So I have a lot of stuff to figure out this week. What about you? Um, I am, I think, supposed to do my first, like, actual normal volunteer shift down at the the visitor center where I'll just be like manning the front desk and answering questions and maybe they'll give me a spreadsheet to fix or something. I don't know. But they haven't called me to let me know when I should come down. So I'm just kind of waiting on that. And I did go last week for my first actual, you know, shift of doing that stuff. And but it was collating day. Ooh. Four, four times a year they get the quarterly brochure ready to send out to eleven hundred people who want it. And into that brochure, we had to collate, uh, I think it was 11 flyers, maybe? Maybe the number 11 is stuck in my head, but yeah. I feel like those people don't want it and somehow just ended up on a list that are like, yeah, you can mail me stuff, whatever. That's also possible, but I will say that from looking at those flyers many, 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 many times, uh, I did get some ideas for activities to do around town. So that oh, was pretty exciting. There you go. Also found out that the library is having a pie sale. And uh, one of our good friends works for the library. So I immediately wanted to chastise her. But then as soon as I got to my car and was getting ready to text, she had already put in the group thread like one minute before pie sale. And I was like, I was just going to yell at you. I was just <laughs> mad at you for that. <laughs> yeah. Give me a pie. And that librarian will be a guest host in a couple weeks. So. Ooh. Very excited for that. I will not be here for that. You will be on vacation enjoying yourself, and we'll be enjoying ourselves here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, I'm doing that. And again, I, too, am drawing a blank. Uh, I'm working on a cross-stitch for a gift for someone. And literally, I did have actual things that I'm doing this week in my head, and it's all Lots gone. of stuff and things. Stuff and things. We're doing stuff and things. And probably, and things no, and probably no murdering. Probably not, and hopefully no people with my name will go a-murdering. Um, because I, otherwise, we're talking about it. We would have to, yeah. Well, that, that might be a multi-parter. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that is our show for this week. As always, we would like to thank you from the bottom of our cold, dark hearts for listening to our filthy words. And we'll see you next week with more historical true crime. Bye! Bye! My sources this week are the book Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession by Rachel Monroe, highly recommended, by the way, the New England Historical Society, the Wikipedia page on Peabody, Find a Grave, Jack Major on Major Smolinski, Undine on Strange Company, Stephanie Almazan on The Lineup, CDC, <sighs> I have something from the CDC. I'm scared. The Ontario Beekeepers Association. Okay. And from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, the Rutland Daily Herald, and the North Adams Transcript, and from the Library of Congress, the Waterbury Democrat. I have the lineup.com by Stephanie Almazon, strangeco.blogspot.com, salemnews.com, and majorsmolinski.com. 